Welcome to the latest episode of Inspiring Futures. Uh, my guest today is Neil Mann. Neil, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot. Glad to be here. Um, tell us where you are. I am currently in Ericeira, Portugal. So about 35 minutes north of Lisbon um, on the coast. Very kind of big shift for me over the last six, six months. I was in New York before that um, and made the leap to kind of move back over to Europe. Cool. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Let's let's. Uh, why don't you start off with kind of uh, a little bit of your history because your history is fascinating. Uh, what did you? Um, let's go back to college. Did you, did you? What did you study? Did you study college? Uh, I did. I went to university. I studied something you probably wouldn't guess. I studied archaeology as my first um, degree. Uh, I think you know it was funny because I didn't know what I wanted to do at school. Um, and I don't think many people do. And I think a lot of people, to be honest, are forced into a pipeline, particularly through traditional schooling. I was, I was at a, quite a traditional kind of British grammar school, um, you know, a public school, but still it had like very, um, very specific, I should say public, I should say state school, very specific kind of, you know, approaches to to where you're expected to go next to university, what you're expected to do. And, and unlike friends who were doctors and lawyers, I really didn't know. Um, and I, I decided I was going to do archaeology just because it sounded interesting. It was kind of history, analysis, understanding of human behavior. Um, and funnily enough, just last week, I was doing a workshop with some kids at a school in L.A. remotely. Um, and they were asking me the same question because I think they were really interested in how I'd moved through um, journalism and then advertising and marketing and transformation and then into what I'm doing now, running a startup. And I think the interesting thing about my degree initially was it, it was really about understanding humans and how they behave. And that's something that I found kind of fascinating. Um, and then I guess I wanted to turn that into kind of the more live version of that, which was moving into journalism. So I went and did a, a postgraduate diploma in um, journalism uh, at Sheffield University. And that then got me into the Sky News newsroom for a, for a work placement. And then the rest is kind of history from there, spent about seven kind of I think seven or eight years at Sky um, in the UK doing domestic news and then international news, um, which was, to be honest, like I, I look back on it and it's an incredible job. It really is just an amazing job. What was your what was your role in the in the in the news organisation? What, what, yeah. What? So for for a lot of people won't know much about um, probably how broadcast newsrooms operate and. Um, the, I, my role, I was a news editor and uh, field producer. So you have two major areas of 24-hour news, you have input and output. And input is news gathering and bringing information into the building and breaking news. And then output is putting the programs to air. You know, if you're watching the morning show currently, a lot of what they're doing there is the output producing, um, writing the scripts, that kind of stuff. My job, I was on initially domestic news as a, a news editor um, and then as a field producer. So as a field producer, you're on the ground with the correspondents and cameramen covering the news stories, you're doing a lot of the interviews. So whenever you see kind of a head pop up in a, in a news package, there's a likelihood that a, new, a field producer's done that. Um, you're covering court cases, um, turning up to breaking news, working with the engineers and the satellite trucks to make sure you go live, um, doing all that kind of stuff and overseeing kind of the news output. And at the same time, you're doing the basics. I mean, you're in charge of like the real basics. Where do people eat? How do they survive? Where do they get the toilet? Um, you know, because you don't think about this stuff when when you watch 24-hour news. But if you turn up at a news story, you know, the news crew, one of the first things is where is everyone going to end up having to go to the loo if we need to? Um, you know, as a field producer, you're trying to work that out. You're also like, where are we going to get food from? We could be here for hours. Um, and so you're just you're just overseeing all of that and then overseeing like the editorial output of the actual story itself and liaising with the with the news desk. And the pressures, to be honest, like absolutely immense. I mean. I don't think there's many jobs where if you make one mistake, you, there's a high chance you're getting fired. But that is one of those jobs where, you know, if you break a news story wrong, the ramifications for a channel like Sky News or, or BBC is just incredible because as soon as they snap it on air, it's going to end up on the wires. Therefore, once it ends up on AP or Reuters, that's distributed globally. Then your mistake is essentially a global mistake in in seconds. Um, no pressure, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a kind so, of so so um a couple of questions. <clears throat> um I guess the first related question to that is where's the oversight? 
who has the oversight? Who who has approval? Is there approval? Uh, yeah, so you, you trusted? Is it they trust you? You're going you're going to go live, and they just trust you, or there is someone who wants to talk to you beforehand? No, if you're in that role, if you're in the role of kind of correspondent and field producer, your your main point of contact is the news editor, of which I was also doing when mm. I was working in the office uh, for periods. And essentially, you're trusted. I mean, you're you're the, one of the top news channels in the world. It's expected that, like, if you have the line as a journo, that's that's the line, and we're going to run with it and and break it. So it's very much like on your head. Um, if you were junior, you've got to go through the news desk, and all lines go through the news desk in that environment. So if you're breaking a news story, you're going to call the news editor, and you're going to say, right, I've got breaking news. X has happened. Um, you know, prime minister has resigned. The first thing they're going to do is put you through to the gallery, which is where they're presenting it live, uh, or they're going to buzz the gallery and tell them the breaking news. So you have to be super clear when you describe that. And it's funny because when I first started, I remember coming out of journalism college and going into the newsroom and somebody asked me something like, what's happened on this story? And I kind of over-articulated what has happened. And they were like, no, top line, please. I haven't got time for anything else. Mm -hmm. And initially you feel a bit like offended and then you realize why. And it's actually something that in all industries I've worked in since I've tried to instill in kind of younger members of staff is like, whenever you're articulating something up the chain, just be super clear on the thing that matters to the people above you. Um, yeah. And journalists get very, very good at that. So what about, yeah. deploy, what about deploying? I mean, where's, how's the decision made that X number of people are going to go out? And obviously this is an editorial meeting. You think of it in a newspaper as what we're going to write tomorrow. Well, how does it happen? How did it happen at Sky in the news? So in new, in the newsroom environment, it goes through the news desk. So the news desk is going to determine how big a story they think it is and how many people need to be deployed, whether they need to wake people up. Um, you know, it was frequently common once I moved to the foreign desk that someone might be walking into, into the newsroom, which happened to me, actually. You're walking into the newsroom and you get told, we need you on a plane in like two hours time. This is a big news story that's just broken and, and you're ready to go. Um, and so it's up to the news desk to determine kind of the uh, scale of what they think the story is going to be. And then when it starts to get bigger, obviously, there's a momentum to, to who gets who gets sent. And, you know, from a domestic angle, it becomes fascinating because even just things like, you know, you're in charge of calling the helicopter and putting the helicopter up. There's a helicopter on standby 24-7. If it's a big news story, you, but you can literally speak to them on a on a little command panel which is just, you know, incredible fun, but also like, you know, if you're making that call, it's quite a big one. And at the same time, you know, it might be 4am, news doesn't stop and there's a news story breaks and you think, actually, I think this is going to be massive by six. Um, and this happens to me numerous times on night shifts and you end up having to wake up news crews, get them in the car at 4am, send them off on, on the trip and just hope that you're not wrong because obviously, um, you know, you could end up sending resources to the wrong place. Um, and so like, it's a very... Um, you have to make decisions and you have to be okay. I think one of the things I learned from it is you have to be okay with making a decision, backing yourself and moving on. And that's it. You've really got to go, right. I'm going to. Um, going into our world for a second, was there a sort of a brand thing about what you wanted? Did you want to be the first guys to break stories? Yeah. Were you disappointed if you didn't? Were you looking down over your shoulders at your competitors? How much, oh, it's, how much a part of that was of the job was that? That's a huge part of it. I mean, Sky News' entire kind of, you know, reason for existing for the last 30 years to be the first for breaking news. And that impacts everything. It impacts the way that people sit within the building so that messages pass faster. It impacts the way that um, just talent operates and the type of people you hire and how they work, um, the logistics and the way that they're structured. But even simple things, like as a field producer, I always wore sneakers to to work because I might be in a foot race. And that happened numerous times. You'd be at an event, something happens, breaking news. I get a card in my hand. It was a tape initially when I first started, which tells you how long ago it was now, 20 years ago. But then it was a card and I'm running against a producer from the BBC to race back to say Millbank in Westminster and feed this card to get the pictures on air. And it was literally a foot race. Um, so that impacts a lot of like from a brand perspective, what, what we were doing at Sky and in, in foreign news, you know, Sky's got some of the best journalists in the world, Alex Crawford, Stuart Ramsey, just incredible people. Um, and, you know, you're working with people who are, who are doing that. They're first for breaking news. 
but they're also operating in incredibly hostile and dangerous environments that put you know people's lives at risk and um you know numerous people have I mean, journalists are dying all the time so um, take for example uh what's happening out in, in gaza israel right now you'd 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 have you have a reporter out there but they would not have the resources to cover it based you know if the thing if the situation escalates right so they you you bring more you bring more resources to them is that what you do well no in the, yeah so in those kind of environments what happens is a foreign news desk has individuals who are what's called fixers who are in almost every country we had a book that's every single okay. country work with sky but when an event happens so for example i covered the war in libya you're dispatched into that environment with everything you need to report on it from there because you've got to operate almost independently. Gaza's a slightly weird one because it's quite hard for journalists to get in right now. Um, but those are obviously that in there are people who are, who've been in Gaza for, for a long time for the most part. But um, places like, you know, the war in Libya, Syria, um, Ukraine, you know, people are traveling in with small teams, everything they need. That includes like, hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash because you need to buy cars when you get in there there's things you need to buy to get around um you've got to survive without any food and and it, you know from my perspective it is an incredible experience i mean you are at the center of things that are happening in the world um it teaches you to handle stress incredibly well um, you don't really get stressed because you just can't it's just not possible um and if you're operating in kind of that kind of environment, and again, I go back to the likes of Alex Crawford or Stuart Ramsey or Jeremy Bowen, you know, these people are just a hundred times better than I ever was. But, you know, when people are operating in that environment, they are delivering like on the journalism and at the same time, they're putting themselves at risk. And, you know, when you come under rocket fire or mortar fire, or even, you know, um, you might be, for example, we have one incident where we're, we're diving into mine sand because, we're under rocket fire. Like you, you, the thing you've got to do is do your job and also put put yourself in the best chance of survival. So, yeah, it's an it's an incredible job, and it teaches you, I think, a lot about communication. Um, I think it also teaches you a lot about team building and the things that matter. And that's something I've taken through through the rest of my career because one of the one of the things that one of the cameramen said to me at the very start was. You know, if you're moving into the field and a lot of producers want to become field producers and it's, it's a, you know, it's a job that a lot of people cover and, and for good reason, it's, you know, you're really at the center of things um, and you're out of the office and you're on the ground. But he said, make sure we've got food and water and we'll do anything for you. Mm. Yes, food, water and coffee, but we'll make sure we've got food, water and coffee and we'll do anything for you. Like keep us fed, keep us watered and we'll, we'll do what you need. Um, and, and it makes you realize that in any job, often those fundamentals are forgotten. And those are the human fundamentals that really, I think, you know, keep people working together as a team. Um, and and obviously, once you're not in that environment, you're in an office environment, it's not just about free food and drink. It's actually just like, what do people need? Is it the way that um, you listen to them or, or you give them time off or downtime to do the things that they need? Mm. Um, yeah, you learn a lot in that, in that kind of in that kind it, of world. It, it's interesting because I was going to ask you a, a question about sort of uh, the health, mental health aspects. I don't know if you've seen the Anthony Bourdain documentary. Yeah, I have. Yeah. And I mean, I've spoken on the past on this in in panels at events and things. And yeah, the mental health aspect is 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 it breaks you, to be frank. Yeah. I mean, you know, it I think you cannot go through that job and not suffer from PTSD. It's impossible. Um, and I think most people who do that job have underlying traits that enable them to operate at that level under a lot of pressure. Mm -hmm. um, and they, they actually are able to kind of pack away what they're dealing with. But, you know, I've got a lot of friends who a lot of friends who still do that job. My Facebook is a very weird feed because it's full of like people from lots of different backgrounds and careers um, and sports. But then a lot of people who are currently like in a war zone and posting about it. Um, and I think, you know, anyone who's gone through that job, it has a huge drain. And it's not just people who do foreign news. You know, a lot of the a lot of the impact also happens at like a local journalism level you know there's there's nothing worse than sitting in a court case of something horrific that's happened to somebody and having to see the images and listen to the witness testimony it's not just those of us that that operated at the foreign news and international level um 
but it does have you know a massive impact on people and i think one of the 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 saddest things and, and it's not talked about enough to be honest with you is that i joined 24 hour news when 24 hour news was a um a business whereby we vetted the footage that got to air so for a piece of footage to get to air, and i remember like alex crawford was in zawiya during the start of um the war in libya and she shot this incredible piece of footage and it was just as Gaddafi's troops fired on civilians and they started rolling. She'd managed to get away from the hotel in, in Tripoli where uh, journalists were being held and, and they got out and, and really got to this flashpoint in Tripoli, which was the weird. And it was like 25, 30 minutes of the, the cameraman just rolling. And it was, you know, horrific footage, but incredible to watch. And just also just to watch her professionalism, they, you know, they, they shot um footage of, of what occurred with the troops firing on civilians and then they got straight in an ambulance to go to the hospital to then see how many people came in wounded you know just to operate at that level in that under that pressure is is incredible but i remember thinking at the time you know so we saw that on the de news desk we clipped it so that um it wasn't broadcast in um the full um gore that, that it really was um and it was still you know going to air it was it was a uh, you know, terrifying thing to watch and, and um, you know, hit home what was happening to, to people there. But it was vetted and it had gone through editorial eyes. And those people, the ones that actually would have had to deal with, you know, the mental aspect of that. The issue in journalism and what happened during my career is that social media came along and it exploded, you know, and um, it, it enabled people at home to see things that they probably would never have seen before. Um, and I don't think many people fully comprehend the impact that's having on like a generation of people, to be honest with you, because now you can go on YouTube and you can find infinite videos of people being killed en masse. Um, and in the same way, if you look at what's just coming out of Gaza, whilst it's incredibly important that these things are witnessed, I don't think it's great for like a 14 year old or 15 year old kid to have that in their feed. And that's essentially what's happening. And so, the PTSD that people in journalism deal with is now very much something that I think is is being seen on mass, and we don't really know the impact that that's going to have on like a population of people. Um, so yeah, that's it's kind of it's so it's was, so was so when you just did you decide to leave partly because of that. Uh, no so my my leaving was a strange one so i i during that time because of social media and it's almost the perfect segue um grew an online following because i was one of the younger journalists um who'd realized that this was fundamentally changing the way that we were doing news and so i started to change the way that i reported and and engage with people and um what happened at the same time was that you know it there was a friction there between newsrooms and how they thought about this new approach to reporting. Um, and for me, it was time to kind of move on from Sky. And so I left um, and ended up going to America. And that's how I moved to kind of work for the Wall Street Journal. Um, and at the Journal, I started initially looking at how they could change social within the newsroom and then moved um, to head up editorial innovation within the newsroom. Um, and really, I think one of the reasons I was brought in was because I'd been there and done it and I wasn't just the social media kind of guy in the corner. I'd actually like been on the ground. And so I could, could really talk to some incredible journalists of the Wall Street Journal. They're our next, you know, really world-class um, about how they could think differently about the way that they approach kind of engaging the audience. And I think for me, that was, that was a great shift. And my wife will, is very happy that that occurred because I no longer do the job, the job that I did. Um, and, you know, I'm very glad I, I stepped out of it. Um, and I often question why I did, because foreign news to me was probably the pinnacle at the time. I'd always wanted to do it, you know, since I started in journalism and then I stepped away from it. But I think what it, the reason I stepped away was because I was really interested in, in doing the next thing and trying to improve the way that I was doing journalism or communicating. And, and that meant social, um, that meant then innovation in storytelling. And then from there, it really meant like, what does it mean for product development? So that was kind of my transition out. Um, and I'm glad I did because, you know, I think it, now, you know, the world of journalism has changed a lot. And if you look at what's happened around the world, you know, death rates are up and 
you know, I, I don't think I'd probably be the same person at 41 than I was, you know, at 27, if I'd stayed within it. Um, and I've got a lot of amazing friends who are still just doing incredible work there. But for me, it was time to kind of do something else. What was the moment when you when you realized, because the way, I, the way I'm trying to translate what you're describing is sort of previously in the old model, sort of journalists were kept under the shell of the brand. Yeah. You worked for the Wall Street Journal, you worked for Sky News. And yes, you, you could build a name, but there was a sort of, you didn't really have the ability to go and build your own brand. So what was the moment when you suddenly said, hang on a minute, this is kind of changing. What did yeah, you saw? That's exactly right. Yeah, that is exactly right. So in journalism, you know, the brand held the power and you all operate under the brand and the brand was king. Um, and in many instances, you weren't even recognized in your work. So yeah. on their correspondence, their name is on screen. A lot of them are household names. But for people like me, I was a backroom boy. Um we weren't, you know, nobody knew we even existed. I didn't even know the field producer job existed until I went to Sky, which tells you a lot about kind of the training in journalism and maybe it was behind the times a bit, but also just, um, yeah, how newsrooms operate. So the moment that happened for me actually was 2009. And I'd, I'd initially started at Sky as part of the domestic team under Five News and um, the financial crisis happened and they cut the team back. And so my hours got drastically cut. And I got offered kind of a few, a day a week or something at Sky News on, on the 24-hour news rolling channel rather than working on the program, um, which is where I'd always wanted to be anyway. But a friend came over and was like, hey, you need to see Twitter and you need to take a look at it. And um, I all of a sudden realized that I could actually do news from home when I wasn't working. And so I could then report on things from home and start to build a following in the social media space and build my own brand. And then that would then get me recognized and improve my opportunities with the likes of Sky and others. So that's what I did. I just hammered it for, you know, I really focused on trying to be first and, and faster and engaging with people and creating like communities in that, that space. Um, and so that was kind of the moment really that, that I saw that shift. And then I helped kind of a lot of other journalists and there were many others at other newsrooms. It wasn't just me, you know, other other younger journalists and some older saw this trend, many older actually saw the trend happening and all kind of jumped on it. Um, and it, in places like Sky and TV channels, it was more of a shock, I think, in some ways than it was at the likes of the Wall Street Journal because at the journal, historically, the journal is still obviously king, but everyone's got a byline. So they've already got their own kind of profile, but what they're not doing is probably commenting openly it's not um, what you were doing. What you you saw Twitter as a as a dialogue. Yes, in many ways, yeah. journalists hadn't traditionally seen it as dialogue. It was a monologue. You know, you were just putting your stuff out there. Maybe someone would write letters in. But yeah. Now you've got real time dialogue. Mm -hmm. That's exactly so, right. So you go to the so you go to the journal and you've got all this incredible experience, which obviously they respected. Um, what were some of the challenges there in in, in implementing uh, some of this some of this thinking in a in a in a sort of veritable institution? Well, I think it's the same challenge that you're going to see, and I've seen like in, in mm. jobs in the later part of my career. Is whenever you're trying to implement a new way of thinking or a new approach, you're ultimately trying to change the behaviour of um, individuals within the organisation and. You know, at, at the journal, there was a huge shift at the time. You know, they were moving to subscriptions. They brought in really kind of, you know, some some great thinkers into that organization. Um, and when you're trying to move people forward, I think one of the things you're dealing with is that, and particularly in something like journalism, people are trained in a specific way of thinking. And this is exactly the same in my mind for advertising. They have been trained in an operating and a particular way to operate. Um, and that in many ways goes back to university. If you think about you and journalism, like what is a story? How do we report it? How's it written? How's a news report produced? Um, and I think the hardest thing to do is to get them to understand that maybe they need to rip that up and, and think slightly differently and show them how to get there. Um, and I got a great advice from some people within the, the newsroom and some bosses of mine. And, and one always stuck with me actually, which was that you can only ever change three areas of the business at once. 
um, which was something one of my bosses said to me who'd been brought in to change the place. You know, you can't, if you do more than that, everybody is going to start to swirl and there's just too much going on. So pick the three big things that, that end up moving the business forward and get us towards the KPIs that we want. And then find areas of the business that are open and receptive to those and then leverage those areas of the business to move each one of those things forward. Because once you start to get some change happening there, other areas of the business will see it and they'll want to take that change on. So in the end, you actually implement the three things you want to do across the entire business. Um, and so that's the same at, at somewhere like the journal as it is as like other major corporations. Um, and, and I think it's, it's a good grounding though, in trying to change the way people create content is a good grounding for then trying to think, how do we change the way that they do advertising, build product or different experiences? So I found that like a really good grounding um, in kind of getting to that point. So um, then what happens? You, you, how, long did you, how long were you at the journal for? So I was at the journal, I think, for three years before I got asked to go work for News Corp in Australia. Um, and I got a great opportunity to go down to Sydney, work under um, Elisa Bowen, who's now currently, I think, president of, of streaming at, at Disney, um, you know, incredibly talented um, on the technical side of the business in kind of the leadership team to help bring all of the brands into the future. Because I think one of the big things for me was at the time, all of the publishers were going through the shift of subscription. And so in News Corp in Australia, they had a hundred, like roughly, I think a hundred brands, but a lot of brands that were all going through that same transition. And so I played the role between the technology team and the newsrooms and the shop floors, because obviously I had the respect of, of the editors there. And a lot of people have run those newsrooms and the businesses in, in Australia under Murdoch are all the editors. Um, and that was where I really got more exposed to the business side of things, the monetization and the change management of, of how do you make change happen at scale across an organization? Um, and how do you use things like, um, you know, corporate innovation work streams to bring everybody together around a, a specific goal and create movement over the business over periods of time. You know, those kind of areas I got deeply exposed to, which was which was a great grounding. Um, and I was waiting for a green card at the time, so I wanted to come back to, to the US. Um, and when I came back to the US, I was kind of looking for really a step into the, the marketing and advertising space because I think, as you mentioned, I'd... I grasped the brand part when I was in journalism. I kind of understood that and, and I built my own brand within it. Um, and there's a reason my, my Twitter handle is, is field producer. It was immediately, I realized if I stamped that on me, I would be the only field producer on Twitter that had that handle. And that was before I was really kind of doing it every day, but I kind of knew brand was an incredibly important thing for me to learn. Um, I knew the content side, I knew the technology side and, and at News Corp, I'd been working a lot with the advertising teams on you know, trying to tell a different story to the media agencies about what News Corp was about and, and help them restructure their teams around new ways of kind of doing content marketing and things. So I was really looking for kind of an opportunity to move into the brand side and, and got very, very, very lucky because it's very hard, actually, I think, to make the transition that, that I made. I know a lot of journalists who tried to make that transition um, and I got really lucky and, and ended up getting connected with with amazing people at Anomaly and then kind of stepped into a role there about seven and a bit years ago now. Oh, I've lost you. Wait, just a second before we talk about Anomaly. So I went on mute for a second. Um, what did you, what were you seeing? You know, you think about the Wall I mean, I think traditionally about something like the Wall Street Journal or even those hundred publications that were part of the empire in Australia. Those that had kind of advertising fiefdoms, these have been really strong sales teams who were, some of whom are a lot on commission, some of whom are making a lot of money. Uh, it was not cheap to, to buy a full page ad in the Wall Street Journal. But people were seeing that this wasn't going to be a business that was going to go on forever. And they needed, so, so, so you've got, you got a transition here. Not only yeah. you, You've got you've got people who are used whose livelihoods have been based on established model, and now you're telling them those livelihoods are going away, and that's yeah. that's very challenging to to deal with, right? 
It is. And it's also, you know, I got a front seat to something that I think a lot of brands have taken a long time to kind of wake up to, which was all of this entire model is based on mass reach and yep. it's based on mass reach and ultimately display. And if you think <laughs> about the history of the way that advertising came about, that's ultimately what it's been based on. And during that shift of subscription, and, and I mean, we're talking 10 years ago now, mm -hmm. we're talking 10, 12, 13 years ago, um, if not longer, um, the newsrooms and the publications needed to shift their models. So they were stepping away from mass reach. And at the same time, it starts to become around the value of the individual themselves. And once you look at the value of the individual themselves, you start to think about what do we therefore know about this individual that then increases that value. And so subscription in publishing really was exactly the same model that we see a lot of brands going through today, which is if you think about Nike, right? Like they've shifted around the concept of membership. They understand all their customers now. They're building those data points out. They're then leveraging them in a different way. And so I think you had this weird tension as you do with brands, right? Which is you had this weird tension in publishing whereby you had a whole host of people whose job it was to make money out of mass reach advertising. And then you had the other part of the business saying, but hang on a second, the value is really in subscribers. Mm -hmm. And so you've got to navigate that tension. And that was a difficult thing that, you know, a very high corporate level, you know, the likes of News Corp and the New York Times and others have had to walk. But I remember one moment to me that that stood out. And and I I think a lot about how the CMOs of today could do with revisiting the publishing transitions that happened like 10 to 20, 10 to 15 years ago. Because I remember one moment where I was sat down with someone at the Wall Street Journal and they said to me, you know, this is crazy. Like, you know, I'm being tasked with with getting reach and engagement and um you know, my KPIs are kind of distribution and seeing how many people can read a story. But if I was to put a paywall on that story, you know, the actual ROI would be better. Instead of getting 100,000 people reading it, maybe I only want 1,000 people and I want 50 subscribing. And all of a sudden, like, that's of more value to the organization. Um, and, and that was kind of the type of conversation that was happening where people were really getting it and they were understanding that transition. And I think a lot now about the way that many brands are still in that model of trying to get mass reach advertising rather than thinking, well, actually really, maybe we want the right people uh, and we need to shift our approach. Um, and, and I think that's a transition that it's funny. There's a lag, right? There's a massive lag. And many, many brands are now in the space where they're going through exactly that same kind of transition that publishing went through. It seems to me there was sort of a mid, there was a sort of point that happened in between those, in, in, in between the sort of the shift from mass. Well, it was kind of part to do with the shift to mass reach, right? It was this whole idea of sharing, right? So suddenly, suddenly this piece could be sh and it was all about virality you know how could could you go viral could the story go viral seemed to be a big part of what was happening in journalism at a period at a certain period of time before the sort of transition to the sort of personalized it yeah was, is there another way to get mass reach was kind of still oh there's so you could see sort of a certain school of person thinking oh oh this is an amplifier of and then and then we got to hang on a minute there's this other thing so i, I think that I, I seem to remember the whole idea of how journal there was all kinds of tools for journalists to measure there were, yeah yeah there were for model, like for modeling out and looking at virality and things yeah and i think that was so again there was a similar transition though because if you think about it like a lot of people the buzzfeeds of the world were like four million clicks and six million right. clicks and 10 million clicks and 20 million clicks and whatever and you know, that's really important if you're getting monetized on display advertising, to be frank. Like that's like important if you're in that model. Virality, I think, is is still incredibly important in the likes of the subscription space or the space that many brands find them in now, but it's different. And I think the key is not, um, can we go viral and can we get as much reach as possible? It's that individuals are often forgotten that they're directly connected to people very, very similar to them. Mm. And so as a brand, like what you want to do in my mind is that, you know, if I think about things like surfing, if you find me, you'll find 25 surfers. Yeah, yeah. And so it's actually about fundamentally shifting that mindset and thinking about 
you know, virality may be amongst a group or a subset or a particular audience and where you show up might be slightly different, but not kind of large scale virality. And there are many brands that have gone through that transition, right? And and it's not new, but I do think that was, a, that was another little shift that happened during the kind of shift to subscription. But then there was also, there was also Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> which really muddied the pond in a massive way, right? It it became the news source. Well, but I think if you were to look strategically, I think a lot of people, a lot of organizations, and there were some, and again, now I think about like brands, right? Like the individual brand, it, those that are good, people will come directly to them. Right. People come directly to those brands, right? And I think in, in publishing, it was the same, is that everybody kind of, bent the knee a bit to Facebook as a distribution platform rather than thinking that actually like, you know, people will still mm. come directly to us. And um, yeah. we've seen things like what happened with Twitter and NPR, you know, they pulled NPR from Twitter and unsurprisingly it's not hurt them at all. Now it's slightly different to Facebook in the way that it's distributed and engaged with, but the brands that are still, you know, operating outside of that and creating high quality stuff still were resonating heavily on those platforms um and so that that definitely all of that was going on in publishing when i was there and it was a really interesting kind of conversation and time and, and strategy shifted and there was a pivot to video and there was a pivot against video um but i think you know for me it taught me a lot about change management understanding the power of content and understanding kind of how you can leverage content in advance of a paywall to bring somebody to a paywall and then use it to get them to sign sign up or use other benefits to get them to sign up which again is a model that like you'll see now in in any brand that's trying to convert a user to be a member you know they're going to be and should be using kind of content marketing to bring them to that point and then drive them over the line um in a structured way so it was a really kind of interesting time to operate in that space and it created the perfect kind of jump for me into the advent the more marketing side right and anomaly is not your traditional agency as such and, and the way that they think is different um but the team that i set up there really helped kind of clients kind of navigate the similar kind of shifts um, how did that, how did that, how did that conversation so you met these guys you obviously had a great profile um in terms of you just been talking about you doing doing the change management thing how did it actually work i mean how you you you, you sort of did they find a job for you is that kind of how they made it work and, and yeah it's a great question i mean i look back and i think i got very lucky i randomly got connected with with johnny vulcan and carl johnson who you know are kind of really big big hitters in in the advertising industry that i didn't even know about to be honest yeah. with you frank i was very naive on understanding who people were um and and i had this profile but i don't think anyone in advertising knew what my profile really was for the most part um and so I got connected with them and I think anomaly being anomaly, they saw that I could bring and add something to the agency and, and to their credit, I don't think there's many agencies that would do that. I'd actually tried to cold email and try and connect with people at agencies and connect on LinkedIn and things. And, and I basically got knockbacks because they saw me as like this guy from, from kind of journalism and publishing. And I think Carl and Johnny, um, uh, they, and the, the team there and Karina, they, they really saw that, um, I could probably bring something different to the table and anomaly you know the the clues in the name it's it's an anomaly in the way that they, it operates but also just in the type of talent they often hire are different yeah. um so yeah i came in there and there wasn't really a job to start with they just gave me a shot and said build build something essentially um you know initially because i come out of publishing they titled it kind of director of content strategy we didn't really know what that meant but it was just the easiest way to land me in the agency and then I very quickly sold in a kind of transformation scope to a client um, to essentially do what my team was doing at News Corp to help set the vision of where they needed to go and then take them on that journey. And that for me is the big missing link that I think a lot of people have when they do transformation work. And if I read, you know, I've read a lot recently about kind of McKinsey and, and those type of big organizations. And, and often what they're doing is kind of incremental change and it's kind of um, high cost, low impact. Whereas really what we needed in my news corp days was we needed a c-suite vision on subscription and what it meant for the organization and to garner everybody around it and get them moving in the same direction and and that's done with kind of thinking a little bit differently 
It's about setting that vision and then saying, this is what it's going to take to get there. And that roadmap will change, but like, let's take ourselves on the journey. So um, you yeah. plan against, you plan against that journey, right? These, you build initiatives and teams to do initiatives to yeah. take that place, right? Exactly. And I think so often the kind of vision part is forgotten and, you know, there's lots of reasons why that is the case. There's kind of everyone's in the day to day. Somebody doesn't want to stick their neck above the parapet. You know, there's all of that kind of stuff. Um, and at the same time, you've also got kind of, you know, you've got the um, the classic Henry Ford anecdote of of four horse. You know, people would ask for for faster mm. horses, that kind of thing. You know, I think when people are in the weeds of their day to day, they you know they just they can't see what what needs to happen and, and where they need to go. So. That was a fascinating time, you know, the last seven years working with just incredible brains at, at Anomaly um, and and client teams. And and the other thing with the way that my team worked is that it was really collaborative, you know, with the um, clients and, and um, uh, the stakeholders. Because I'd seen at News Corp that if you're bringing in somebody to do some consulting, the last thing you want is a deck that goes nowhere. Like what yeah. you actually want is to empower internal teams to own the yeah. change forward so that's what we endeavored endeavored to do and um yeah it was it was fun and i think for me that was the stepping stone really to to launching my own company um because i'd been allowed and i'd had the freedom to be entrepreneurial at both news corp and then at anomaly and i'd learned a lot about how to build something um and then the next step was how do i launch launch my own thing really um and so that's kind of how i ended up launching known and 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 moving to moving to Europe. Just just should we go back to anomaly for a second, just a little bit? So yes. you mentioned this moment where you you're 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 heading up the content, but you sell in you, your words where you sold in a transformation project. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit. I mean, don't disclose obviously confidentiality, but um, you know, that seems like a big leap, right? That suddenly you you so, do yeah one, you're doing one thing and and then you pivot to doing something that you kind of really wanted to be doing um I, it sounds question. like a big leap but i'll explain okay. why it's not because okay. the most fundamental thing if you're going to transform any business is content at scale it is a hundred percent what you need to implement if you want to do any level of personalization across an organization and we're talking now like before open ai right because ai is going to make this even easier but prior to um llms like the number one thing you need and even with llms the number one thing you need to transform an organization is personalized content at scale that is how you're going to leverage content to bring people into your ecosystem um, and change the way that you go to market it's the way that you're going to add extra value into your product to retain them it's also the way that you're going to learn more about them alongside features around what they're engaging with etc and so it's not actually a big leap if you're working with um, a client. And I mean, I was given that title largely because I'd come out of publishing, but I was kind of open and transparent around like what yeah. I'd come from and been doing. Um, and so it was super, it was honestly really obvious to the client. It's like, well, you know, we actually need to do this. Um, and I think a lot of what they'd seen before from other clients was very surface level, you know, content strategy in, in the more marketing but From space. other agencies, you mean? Yeah, other agencies and consultants yeah. and, you know, yeah. I'd been working at News Corp with like my desk buddy was the global head of architecture, implemented the content API. You know, I learned an incredible amount about like how you actually structure and deliver content at scale. We were leveraging content to drive subscriptions in front of the paywall and being super strategic about what was being created. We were doing the same thing to deliver personalization behind the paywall. So it was really, I think, just bringing that kind of thinking was yeah. not necessarily an un unnatural thing to to do. When, when you're when you're developing that, you know, there's, it's to me this kind of an interesting thing. One is a sort of infrastructural problem of like you've got to make a lot of things, and you've got to have an infrastructure to do that, and that's there's quite a lot of complexity to that. And then there's to me a quality issue. Well, I I I sort of look as a as a relatively objective observer and see. It, we're, we're on an AI hiding to a deluge of crap. Um, yeah. You know, you know where where it is. I mean, I remember going. It wasn't that long ago that uh, someone I know quite well set up a company to sort of help people manage. It was more sort of a dashboard to manage content, and it grew the company quite successfully and had a number of successful brands. 
and going to one of those conferences where all these users were at and hearing them talk about costs a lot. We're, we're getting the same amount of reach as we could with from an expensive ad, but there was no sort of there was no sort of metric around quality. It was just it was just about getting stuff out into the channels because getting stuff into the channels was deemed to be good enough. But I think for me, there's a missing link there, you see, and this is what was yeah. often missing amongst much a lot of agencies is that content creates an action where you move from one place to another. And so you need to be leveraging it. If you define the center of your ecosystem and where your business is trying to drive people, you then need to be leveraging anything in front of that to move somebody closer to that experience. And so it's the action of the act of movement. And there are multiple different KPIs you can set, but the act of moving through is pivotal because you're moving someone from an, an unknown experience into a known environment where you then know who they are. And then if you can actively get them to sign up for an email or download something, you've established a relationship with them. So I think that was the big missing link for me that I think a lot of people um, were, were missing and do miss in general. And then I think just to your point on quality, I, quality is relevant to what you're looking for. You know, like there is a lot of stuff that people spend hours and hours and hours on watching on Instagram that I would deem to be absolutely horrific um but they thoroughly enjoy it because at that moment in time it's solving a need for them and a job and so i think it depends on what you're creating to generate scale and if you look at the likes of patagonia for example you can create high quality content that still connects the value of someone's interest to the product and that's ultimately like the key right is how do you bring someone in around their interests and then connect them to the actual product itself um, in a way that leverages content because then you're actually moving them through and they're actively choosing to engage it goes so the, back to it goes back to brand really doesn't it uh brand and brand and um the content itself and who you leverage and what the content tells a story of and the yeah. role it plays for you as an individual um i think is also key because you can launch a brand from scratch with um, the right content approach and and the right thing that delivers the right value to users um, so so if if how do you respond to this idea of subscription fatigue if everything's a subscription, isn't there? Do we have uh, the human beings have going back to human behavior that we started off with? Do we have a, do we have a limit to, you know, the the? It seems like, and everyone moves to subscription when everything becomes a subscription, then it becomes a battle as to which ones are the most important because we we are not going to have a hundred subscriptions. We can't afford it, and um, we can't manage them. But well, there's two things. One, I think most people can afford it. They probably run a hell of a lot more subscriptions than they actually use, and they're not bothered because today's day and age, they've actually got a lot of cash, right? Um, I do think that is the case, and we kind of forget that. Two, I think the, the fundamental difference is people are probably more fatigued from being um, shown things that they're not even interested in. Yeah. Whereas they're way more fatigued by that, right? Like right. really frustrated by it. Whereas actually subscriptions themselves are about you choosing the things that are most value to you and having therefore a direct relationship now i think the fatigue occurs when you get no value from that subscription if you're getting no value from that subscription or the subscription is low then and it's not it's not something that's of relevance to me then i'm gonna i'm gonna drop it however if it is solving a problem for me or giving me some sort of value that i'm searching for then i'm gonna sign up and i'm gonna pay and i'm gonna therefore experience a much better experience than if i didn't um and so i think it takes you to it takes you to what you're doing now right this it takes me to what i'm doing now yeah i mean look we during the pandemic i think you know we launched known um pretty recently we're a generative ai platform that enables small business owners to essentially run build and grow their subscription business um because building subscription businesses is complex you know it's it's crazy if you think about the, the transition to subscriptions we're talking about personal trainers um, fitness coaches, if you just look in the health and wellness category alone, there's a vast number of different people who are experts in something else who are then being asked to be a brand strategist and be a membership strategist. And a technologist. And technologist, what stack do I use? And then also, what emails do I send? And oh my God, people are churning, what do I do? So we're essentially building a platform to enable them to, to do that, leveraging AI, um, just to make, in many ways, make their life easier. Um, but also enable them to grow faster. Because I think for us, 
you know, generative AI is going to take millions of jobs globally. There is no doubt in my mind when it's implemented from the top down, global companies are going to take millions of jobs. But in my mind, if we put it in the hands of people on the ground floor, we can give them powers they never had before. And that means that we can essentially grow those businesses. And that's what we're really kind of setting out to do. Um, and, you know, I think it it's empowering Gen AI for, for small business owners in particular and SMEs because, you know, they're overwhelmed. They're trying to search through, to your point, the, the crap content on YouTube to work out what the answer is to their business problem or they're Googling it, et cetera. Um, and there, there are better ways if we can give them the right kind of guidance and advice advice with AI. So that's that's ultimately why we founded Node. And in many ways, it's the same, it's that same shift, right? And um, whether it's subscription or not, the, the, the shift is actually fundamentally a shift where I have a direct relationship with the brand. That's the actual underlying shift, right? And I think it's the same shift publishing went through. It's the same shift that kind of broadcast went through as well. And then it's the same shift that many brands like Nike and others have gone through, which is, um, you know, we don't have a relationship with the customer. They walk in the door. And actually with one client I worked on that was a retail retail client, you know, global retail client, the CEO said to me, our strategy has been based on picking busy high streets or main streets and opening the doors and hoping people walk in. And now we need to shift that strategy to knowing who these people are and communicating them one-to-one. And so I think whether or not that's a subscription or another model, it's all about that, that owning that relationship with the customer directly and giving them value um, and, and having a deeper ultimate connection to kind of who they are. And that is, it's funny because it's, if you trace my career, it's ultimately traced that same shift across like categories and industries and kind of size of business um and that's kind of where we've where we've now ended up with with known and and uh, smes there's there's sort of there's something also um i i don't know if you i guess you read this thing uh, open ai announced that they were going to do pdf conversions yeah and immediately like took a, a scythe to a bunch of startups who have been doing that right yeah yeah so, i think yeah sorry go on so is there a day is there a danger that these tools become sort of widely available and and uh you know just through something like open ai the so i think the, the thing is that ultimately this is a race for knowledge and it's about holding the knowledge of whatever it is whether it's the medical industry smes um you know you'll see these kind of businesses pop up in the ai world and it's about having knowledge that ai can reference that's that's the key right and you know they they've opened that they've increased the token window which enables you to fill it with more knowledge to get a better response back um the the thing i think is that with what they did with retrieval, I don't know if you've used it, but if you use, you know, GPTs, it's incredibly powerful, right? It is. But ultimately, it's still a choose-your-own-adventure in many ways for people. And so for us, we believe that um, this is really about providing bespoke, easy-to-use workflows that enable people to, to take a, a step through a journey. And you'll see a lot of the startups in different spaces, like I say, like the medical industry and others, they're really focused on, on that um, because... You need to hold that knowledge and then you need to make it easy for people to build it and then reference it and leverage it in the right way. Um, and that's something that needs to be bespoke per category, per product. Um, I do think, though, that one of the things that OpenAI did that is not talked about enough is that I think they really took, um, because everybody, everyone jumps on that as the use case, right? Which is, hey, there's loads of startups that have um have got pdf holding and now you can reference your pdf and they do it as well which which you see a lot right like you, you get that and it's a valid criticism those startups will pivot and they're building ai native i think one of the things that a lot of people are not clued up on is that across different categories global brands have distinguished themselves they might have a fundamental underlying similar product if you were to take for example like the finance industry your insurance product across different categories is ultimately the same, 
the banking product is ultimately the same. And so the way that these these businesses have distinguished themselves, you know, we're talking Fortune 500 companies, mm. is that they have added feature sets on top of those to increase your value. Uh, they make things faster, et cetera. And they've used that combined with their core product, which is essentially the same as other categories, to distinguish themselves in the marketplace. And then they've used different branding. I think the key thing that people are missing is that the AI experience now is going to offer what most of those brands have been having, have had roadmaps that are five years long, trying to get to like a hyper-personalized experience for you, right? Like, so what's going to happen is that there's going to be no difference between any of those insurers. They're all going to have the underlying product. The features are ultimately all going to be probably the same driven by an LLM. And I think you're going to end up with a consolidation of a, of a few of them that survive based on the brand, et cetera. Um, and that's not being talked about enough in my mind no. because it's, we're not going to be, you know, I think you're going to find that like, it's all going to be very kind of. Well, is, there, is there another evolution? What is, is the actual evolution to set, go back to your point, which is hyper-personalization because yeah. the problem is it's, it, it's, you're going to get stage one where everything's a commodity and you can't differentiate, but stage two will be the smart people who use their intelligence to say, you need a fundamentally different current account because you got, you're living overseas, you got two kids, you want to send them, you know, you know what I mean? I think that might happen. I think the smart guys will be the ones that can produce, create products that are personalized based on the intelligence and the data they have yeah i mean that's that's a valid point like they might create a new underlying banking product that's that's hyper personalized and flexible to you and i think they might or or an insurance product or whatever like you know those are the ones that might end up winning out um and you see i i like i don't look at because every time open ai brings out something in the startup space you'll see that same conversation happen and i think about these startups that you know, very different to us in the way they're structured, but they've got really what I would call features in many ways. They're a feature set, right? And and I watch what's happening and I don't really worry about them because I think the whoever's building that is native to building AI. They know that knowledge needs to be at the core. They're building something on top of it to solve a need. They'll pivot, they'll add more, whatever. And open AI, there's a limit on how far they can scale. It's not their business model, um, et cetera. But I think the people that, the thing that's not talked about enough is is what we just described which is what is the impact on global companies that have had long, tedious roadmaps um, that have been set out, that do not have the underlying technology or, or data structure and only have a simple kind of, you know, at their core, core products, because they're all going to end up the same. And to your point, like maybe that's maybe that's the, the way that it evolves. Now, I also think, I think it's really interesting on the other side where if you looked at it very simplistically, you could say, how much money could Cristiano Ronaldo generate from his own coaching business, yeah. which could be AI driven, digitized, blah, blah. He's also got the scale and the you know number one ranking in terms of fame. But you've got then you've got the guy down the road who's doing little league coaching or mini soccer or whatever, who also has the same tools but doesn't have the fame. Yeah. And it seems to sort of like one guy needs, one guy could really capitalize on sort of infrastructure and make a fortune just because they have the fame. The other needs both. They need the infrastructure, but they also need the go-to-market plan to get them. Definitely. But they also have something that I do believe will still be needed. They have a human touch and a role for a human in that environment, right? Where there will be loads of products where AI just does the job. But there'll be a lot of others where people want the kind of human touch and want to know like what they're doing wrong or what they're doing right from an individual or yeah, even yeah. just conversation with an individual and yeah, so there yeah. is a strength to those no, I, I think that i think that's really really interesting and i think the other thing that, that i don't know if you'll find but i'm sure um you know it goes back to your retailer point which is you know we just opened doors you think of it just use the analog of a of a of a gym just a local gym a walk-in independently owned private gym which we have tons of around here. So suddenly this person, okay, you could you could be doing more. You could be acquiring more customers for your gym. You could be setting up a new lines of revenue, but you kind of need to know who you are before they just sort of 
yeah. I am this physical place three blocks from where you live. That's who I am. And I and I do Pilates. But yeah. now you're going to have to think a lot more about really who you are. And that's going to be a key part of the build. It is. I I think there's an investor called James Wise who's got a book out at the moment on um, uh, the future of kind of the way that, that this space is going to evolve. Um <laughs> And the next billion kind of businesses and i think one of the focuses is you're going to see a lot more entrepreneurs because individuals now are going to have the tools that they never had before to, to launch things and build things and i think that's exactly right and then part of that is how do they position themselves what do they do and you know that's what we're really kind of building for um and i think the other thing just to go back to the the cristiano ronaldo um analogy that that i think is really interesting is we've seen OpenAI, for example, come out and talk about copyright. And obviously they're under a lot of pressure from the publications. And, and we've seen a lot of like celebrities and comedians saying, you're training it on my um, on my jokes, et cetera. I think one of the things they did when they launched GPTs is they launched a store and they gave anybody the ability to build a GPT and then essentially monetize it in that store. And they have this product copyright shield, which we're hearing is going to monitor your copyright. But I saw somebody you know, release a GPT today that they trained on Apple's design principles and they put it out there and it's incredibly, it's incredibly powerful if you want to, you know, do something on the, the Apple design principles. But it made me think like, you know, what they've ultimately done is they put the burden of the copyright on the individual and that's what they're trying to do. And yet, you know, when Sam Altman stood up and demoed his one, which was, you know, you could ask during the dev day, you could ask it any questions um, from him about your startup and it'll give you advice and guidance. There's nothing to stop an individual doing that themselves and then inputting content for a whole host of different different locations and places. Um, where does the copyright lie? Um, you know, that is also obviously key. Um, and and the burden is on the individual. And I think this is this is one of the big barriers that they're gonna face. Um in scaling is, you know, how does that occur? Because there's nothing to stop anybody launching a brand, um, you know, brand guidelines one, or you know, what you can learn from different companies and taking everything that's that's theirs. Um, is that something that's copyrighted? It's in the public domain. These are questions that are really gonna gonna be tackled, I think, um, over the next kind of couple of years when we when we deal with this kind of stuff. So um, just to conclude, summarize, um, finish. Um, so you kind of have you kind of have a vision of what you want to do, and, and it's sort of a uh, about empowerment. Really, it's about empowering people to um, to be able to do things that, in a way, scale and all the things that big companies can do. Now they have the tools to be competitive, I guess. As a guess yeah. Yeah, I think for us, like our mission is is really to democratize access to kind of level you know, the playing field, level the playing field. Um, and you know, the realities are like, oh, all the technology tools have been there the last kind of few years. But the key thing for us is that what these people are missing is the knowledge and support. Um, and so we want to level the playing field and use AI to do that. Um, and I think, you know, our early results are, uh, are proving that out. You know, we're an early stage company, but um you know we're starting to prove that out you know for me personally it's uh you know it's been a big leap um and i think one of the things i'm really invested in and i've started writing about is like the journey of entrepreneurship um and just the story behind why why people do it um, because it's relevant to me as it is to somebody else who wants to launch a startup but it's also relevant to kind of that small business owner that decides they're going to become uh, a yeah. fitness coach or launch a little dtc you know and i I feel like that that for us is is we want to give people the opportunity to actually take the risk and and for it to be less of a risk for them because mm. they know that they've some something's got their back someone's got it seems their like back. you should uh you should be involved getting talking to the people that do the do lecture series do you know those guys i'm not familiar with that no to send it over um really interesting david hyatt used to be a copywriter um created his own sportswear brand, sold it for a lot of money. And then he has this, you remember Pepe Jeans in the UK? Yeah. He ended up buying the defunct plant in Wales 
and then making really high-end jeans. And he has, that's one business, but he also has this brand called Do. And Do's about physical events, but it's also publishing. So they have a whole book series. But that whole that whole MO of, of Do is, how do you take someone who has an idea and put them on the tracks to making that happen? And he does a lot of coaching. He does a lot of other things around that. And I've actually been to one of his like retreats. And it's pretty, it's pretty phenomenal. I mean, right. you, your, you meet the most incredible, the most, the most incredible people there. And they're not names, which yeah. is very interesting. They're just people who've done amazing things that you don't recognize because they're not famous. But um, you hear people who stories of people who went to these retreats and literally 12 hours after leaving resigned. Uh, uh, from their jobs because they were sort of so inspired to do something. So that's a really interesting thing organizations should look into because um, it's very, there's a sort of a lot of analogy and parallels with what you're trying to do and who they're talking to. I think as well, like for me, you know, I wrote about this today actually, but, you know, I think for me, a lot of it in my personal story is about understanding risk and taking risk. If I go back to like my journalism days, you know, one of the things you learn, whether you do extreme sports, which I do, you know, I spent a long time climbing and, and surfing um, is, is my life. But what you really learn in foreign news, which is similar to that, is that you can only control your own behavior. And when you're in a really dangerous environment, you de-risk by controlling your own behavior and putting yourself in, in a safe position. So, you know, for example, in in like a, a, a combat zone, you know, if if you're getting rocketed or or mortared you need to just get yourself behind a wall um i actually remember in in libya i was i was fresh you know i'd only i'd only done one year in in foreign news but we came under rocket fire and i end up in in uh a kind of i don't know a divot i guess with a bbc correspondent who was who was um much more experienced than me and he, he just cracked a book out of his flat jacket and just started reading while we sat there under rocket fire and i think you know for a lot of these entrepreneurs and and people like myself, it, it comes down to particularly if you're 40, like I am, or 40, I'm 41 now, is how do you you de-risk your situation? Um, and how do you take that leap? And there's a reason why, like a lot of people who start companies are 21, 22, uh, because they don't have any risk and and they can make that leap. Whereas those of us that are a bit older, we have to think about like how do we actually take the risk to to do to do this. Um, and, you know, for me personally, that that involved, you know, I spent a long time in journalism. You know, I'm not going to pretend that journalism pays pays amazingly, um, you know. Um, so I had to kind of decide with my wife, how do we do this? And for us, it was moving somewhere cheaper that had a tech hub and that was Portugal. But we don't want, you know, part of what Known's trying to do is we don't want individuals to have to make that same kind of life upheaval. And I was lucky my kids weren't in school yet and I didn't have a mortgage in, in America. Um, you know, we want people to to understand that like they can take that leap and, and be um, able to feel assured that they can actually take that. And, and we're going to try and use AI to kind of enable them to, to do it. Yeah, that's very cool. All right. Well, thanks so much for your time. It was a great conversation. Loved hearing no your story. And um, I will let you know when uh, I put this up. And uh, yeah. uh, thanks, really, really great chatting. Thanks so much. Take it easy. Bye. Thanks.